Hello, I'm Samia Aryan. I'm a tech philosopher, author, filmmaker, and the founder of Fempeak. On this podcast, I speak to some of the most brilliant minds of our time to help us navigate emerging technologies leading to a socioeconomic singularity. Our guest on today's podcast is Stefan Levera, the host of a leading Bitcoin podcast. He's also the managing director of Swan Bitcoin International. One of the most fascinating things about these conversations is that I'm learning how much the perspectives of various industry leaders can be different from each other. From the outside, most people think of the crypto space as being one thing. But for example, Stefan and I have very different views. I think blockchain is really a game changer as a technology that is empowering many other sociocultural movements. But Stefan is less interested in such technologies as Ethereum, NFTs, DAOs, etc. It's definitely a fascinating topic, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation as much as I did. It's so important to hear different perspectives and decide for yourself what you think is the right way to approach this space. Before we start, let me tell you a few words about our sponsor for today's show. Meta Brew Society, founded by Holger Manmüller, is the first project that builds a utility bridge between NFTs and the metaverse and a legacy industry. Every Meta Brew Society NFT grants its holder unseen IRL utility of up to 300 cans of free craft beer per year in perpetuity, voting rights on the business decisions and access to exclusive brewing classes and beer tastings. First of all, thank you for being here. Um, it's not every day that I get a chance to talk about uh, these topics. You know, we, uh, of course, I'm running a, a platform where we uh, teach people about Web3 and, uh, you know, everything to do with um, tokenization, how tokenization is changing the society. I'm trying to explain to them that this is really about how, as humans, we are uh, organizing ourselves. Um, so the bigger picture. So for many people, topics like Bitcoin is just about number go up. You know, and I try to explain to them that this is much bigger than it's about you know, how we as, as humans are learning a new way of organizing ourselves. So maybe to begin with, um, you've got some strong views on uh, in terms of your political philosophy. I think, you know, listening to a lot of the conversations that you've had, I pretty much put myself in a similar camp to you. Um, I think I, I'm an anarchist at heart. Um, you know, I think I do believe that we as humans can eventually, using technology, find ways to organize ourselves that doesn't require a centralized government. You know, I come from Iran originally, um, so you can imagine that I have a, a bit of a disdain for, <laughs> you know, for, uh, for authoritarianism. Um, and uh, it does worry me now that I live in the UK that sometimes I see signs of, um, authoritarianism even in western governments so so why don't you start by explaining about your uh, stance and and you know the different camps within this different um stages of you know how far away you go from the government all right okay yeah so broadly speaking yes i subscribe to the libertarian school of thought if you will so that is a political school of thought or political philosophy generally focused on the rights of the individual and on private property rights. Now, within the world of libertarianism, there are different camps or schools of thought under that 
broad banner of libertarianism. There are those who believe in, let's say, a small, smaller government than what exists today, and they they might call themselves libertarians. And then there would be what we what what we term minarchists. These are people who believe in, let's say, the minimal form of the state. And so from that from that point of view, it's generally things like police and courts and you know the very minimal aspect and then over on the fully free market side let's say is the anarcho-capitalist view of libertarianism which is that everything should be private even the law even the enforcement even the jailing even the roads even the national defense quote-unquote national defense all of these things could be privatized and would be done better by the private sector than by the state and so important to note here that from a libertarian point of view the way i'm seeing the state is it is the territorial monopolist of taxation and law basically the state has the authority to coerce us to pay taxes and to obey its laws and we don't have that ability to push that obligation back onto the state we can't say you know we we just don't have that same right and so from our point of view, we see it as bothly, both a moral case, an ethical case, and also a pragmatic, pr- practical case. We believe that the market is more efficient for the same reason that we don't want the government producing bread is the same reason we don't want the government to have control over education, health, police, etc. And so that is at a high level where I'm coming from. And in terms of influences on my thought, it's uh, various Austrian economists and people like Mises, Murray Rothbard, Hans Hermann Hopper, who are considered thought leaders in this world. And in the modern day tradition, obviously Hans Hermann Hopper is still alive, um, but uh, some of the younger leaders in this space, people like Bob Murphy, Tom Woods, Jeff Deist, uh, these are some other people who are currently pushing that forward or putting that idea out there although i am i'm in that same camp of i'm in that same school of thought nice so um where do you see the role of technology in all of this um you know how do you think technology is going to impact which of these branches sure yeah so look technology can be used to coerce and to compel and it can be used to surveil just as it is today like the the leaks of Edward Snowden in 2012, that's now 10 years ago, they really showed the world that technology can be used to spy on people. It can be used to control people. And there have been all kinds of different things happening over that last decade that people could make arguments about, okay, how much is technology influencing things, even to the point of influencing elections and big tech? And is big tech arguably more powerful than at least some small nation states? maybe not as powerful as the US government. But I mean, in certain cases, you could even make that argument that actually in certain ways, certain big tech platforms actually are more powerful than the US government because they worry, let's say, that Zuckerberg might theoretically drive the algorithm against a particular politician and in doing so tip the election in his own favor or against a certain politician if they do something to him, right? As an example, right? It's a bit of a hypothetical, obviously. But Certainly, there is that possibility. But also, I see a possibility with Bitcoin and with uh, other technologies that enable people to be self-sovereign. And I think that's even 
that's partly what we do at Swan is helping teach people, hey, this is how you can take control of your own coins and at least take back some of that wealth. And I think to that question you were asking about where and what is technology going to do to the relationship that we have with the states that essentially control and rule over us, I think it will change that relationship because fundamentally people now have that option to be able to stack sats, stack some coin and leave if they need to. And with Bitcoin, um, not not sure how familiar everyone is with Bitcoin, but when you set up a Bitcoin wallet, for example, you can set it up on your phone easily with apps like Samurai Wallet or Blue Wallet or Phoenix Wallet. And they will typically give you 12 words and you'll write that down. And theoretically, you could then, you can use that to receive some coin or you could buy some coin and then you could walk across the border memorizing 12 words. So even if you had nothing on you and they could not, you know, whereas historically, if you wanted to, like in an extreme scenario and you had to flee, you would have to try to smuggle the gold out of the country. Like it's insane, right? Because ultimately you're having to trust somebody else. But with Bitcoin, you don't have to. So that's, I think Bitcoin is the most important technology in this overall uh, search for liberty. But there are other technologies as well. Things like being able to self-host your your files and your documents and being able to still communicate using encrypted communications or VPNs as an example or Tor, the onion router, being able to use these technologies and techniques to either give yourself some more privacy or be able to still access the internet or access things under more, let's say, adversarial conditions. Yes, absolutely. So um, the way I see it, I think that the technology of money being decentralized is only the start of um, other technologies being decentralized. You know, if you think about um, Charles Babbage came with the idea uh, for a computer, at first he thought that this was going to be used to do logarithmic, um, uh, you know, uh, calculations. And then his protege, Ada Lovelace, looked at that and said, actually, this could be used for anything. You know, it could be a universal machine, which then became a universal Turing machine when Alan Turing turned that into, you know, a, a universal uh, computer. So I think in a similar way, um, Bitcoin started out with decentralizing money. Um, I'd love to hear your thoughts on things like Ethereum. Uh, do you think, because uh, for me, the way I see it, Bitcoin decentralized money, Ethereum is tr- trying to decentralize everything, um, you know, uh, to, uh, I think, over time. I know it's very hard for people to um, imagine that sometimes now, but I think that that's where it's going. And um, if it's not Ethereum, it will be something else, you know, but I, I feel like the same technology that's used to decentralize money can also decentralize power. So I... I have to disagree a little bit. I don't really see that much of a point to Ethereum. Like, okay, yeah, for some people, yeah, maybe they they can get rich off it, but I don't see it as really bringing about the same kind of sociological, broad economic change that Bitcoin is. Reason being, I see Ethereum as just creating this new system that's enriching like certain individuals in that ecosystem rather than actually creating a genuine new money. And so... From my point of view, I I just see Ethereum as it, it has various flaws and like just constant sort of band-aid on top of band-aid. That's 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 what it seems like to me, right? From from I I, I just see it like why would people want to 
prepay their bank fee as an example, right? Like if, if you want to have, I, I see it more like we're going to be moving into a world where it's going to be Bitcoin will be the money, but the services that you use may not necessarily be as quote unquote decentralized or on a blockchain. They may just be a company who's just using Bitcoin. Uh, and I don't see an issue with that. I just, for me, the critique of Ethereum is partly that I think it will, it, it is centralizing and it may sent, continue to centralize. And I also think it, it ends up being a lot of a, a bit of a boondoggle, right? Like if you're seeing how high the fee, the fees are going and they're, they're sort of always continually trying to patch things up with a new patch. And then there's all this noise about going towards proof of stake, but then it keeps getting pushed back. And from my point of view, I just, I don't see a lot of value in it for, for me. Like I understand other people find they, they have their own reasons for seeing value in it. I'm focused on getting the money right first and fixing the money is important. And so then once we get that money right, then we can build other things on top of that. And they may not necessarily have to be on a blockchain. So from my point of view, the use of a blockchain is like this incredibly highly computationally costly thing. It's not an efficiency thing. It's very inefficient. Yes. But the reason we use it is because of the social scalability benefit that we get. And so I see it as that's what enables the system to operate in this decentralized way, but also in a robust and accessible way. And it's sort of like balancing across all of these things, right? Having a system that's really this decentralized, this robust, this accessible, and able to be cheaply validated, I think is very important. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. Yeah, I, I have to disagree a little bit. You know, I, I own Bitcoin, you know, I, I respect what Bitcoin is doing. I think it's very valuable. However, um, I do think there is a value to decentralizing other things too. Um, and I think it's only a technological issue that we don't, we are not able to do it yet. Uh, I think over time, as our technology grows, you know, imagine once we have um, quantum computing, you know, there's uh, all of those inefficiencies can be solved. And the way I see it, I think that Ethereum, and, and it doesn't have to be Ethereum, maybe something else, like in, in a few years time, you know, maybe something completely different. Are you familiar with DAOs? Yeah, so one of the first is that I actually think is actually the BISC DAO. So okay. BitSquare, so they, I think they were one of the first, although people kind of debate exactly what is a DAO or how do you define it? But um, yeah, I have a, a, some familiarity, but not much with DAOs. Well, the reason I talk about that is because DAOs, you know, so much has come out of the Ethereum ecosystem, you know, NFTs, DAOs, you know, all of these things. I, I, I see a lot of value in them when you start to actually experiment with them. Um, you know, like I was not into NFTs at all, but once I started to really explore it and think about how you could build communities, how you could liberate, uh, you know, artists and, and create a lot of possibilities for them to, um, uh, you know, to build communities, I can see a lot of value in uh, potentially in the direction that that it's going. So um, I think definitely we could be living in a multi-chain world. I, I think that, you know, actually, to be honest, I became interested in blockchain before I became interested in Bitcoin. So most people, uh, you know, learned about Bitcoin and they were like, okay, so what is this thing? The number is going up and, and you know, it's creating a lot of money for people. So they, they got into it. Um, whereas for me, it was like, I, I read about blockchain and I was like, this is going to uh, disrupt big tech. And, you know, this is going to disrupt, um, you know, Amazon and, and Apple. 
and Google. And that's what was interesting for me because I was like, we need to get away from um, whether it's a nation state or a corporate state. The problem is that authoritarianism that it can lead to. So I wonder if, if we lived in a world that there was no Ethereum or there was no other forms of you know, use of blockchain, how could Bitcoin save us from um, the metaverse becoming you know, the next authoritarian state? Right. So I see it like modern nation states are able to fund their behavior through cheap debt. That means they use a lot of, they put out government bonds, the bag holders around the world who have been tricked into thinking that these are a good investment or that they are quote unquote, the safest, you know, the risks, the risk-free return rate of return. And they rely on this and they rely on this whole philosophy and, and they rely on, it's, it's a whole bunch of things, right? There's kind of the education propaganda aspect of, ah, oh, see, my nation state is the best versus yours is bad. And like, there's kind of a bit of a nationalistic aspect there. And that also drives people to try to have allegiance to their state as opposed to their people. And, you know, like if you've ever heard people say that saying of, you know, I, I love my country, but I hate my government. And so people, I think, should stop conflating the state with being good or democracy being good. It's not, in my view. It's, uh, so I understand that can be a bit sort of out there for people they, because nowadays democracy is seen as like a good thing. People say, oh, it's democratic. That makes it, you know, people see it like a synonym for good, but I don't actually see it that way. I see it more like what's important is giving people the right property rights and justice. And so from my point of view, it's who is the correct owner of that property? Who is the first person to mix their labor with that, with that land or that property or who created it? And then they should be given the physical, the property right. And property rights are only in physical things, not in intellectual things, because you can't own an idea, right? I can't own a tune or a number. Anyone could you know, say that or pr produce that. But the point is, People should be able to own that and then they should be the determinant of what happens with that. So it, what I'm talking about is more like a private property order. However, from my perspective, the authoritarianism is coming in when the state does not respect that because the state says, regardless of who owns that property, you know, you owe me X, Y, and Z property tax, or I'm going to regulate your business or I'm going to regulate your use of that property so many. So you may not do it in the way that you choose, you know, because we, the community have sort of chosen and in the same way that, you know, uh, two wolves and a sheep vote on who's for dinner, that's not really just right. Like, or in the same, or another example from uh, philosopher, Michael Humer, he's also an anarcho-capitalist libertarian. He gives this example, right? He says, imagine you go for dinner with a group of 10 people. So there's nine other people. And then at the end of the dinner, all of those nine people vote for you to take, to pick up the check. Is that a fair outcome? Well, I'll tell you what, it's definitely a democratic outcome, but it's not a, it's not a just like, and most people understand this. They say, well, hang on, we didn't agree. I didn't agree to this. And so there's a bit of this kind of social contract theory argument. Now, some people agree with social contract theory. Many uh, libertarians, especially the, the anarcho-capitalist libertarians reject that theory. They say, no, we never signed up for this. You shouldn't have unchosen positive obligations to things. Your obligation to other people is to obviously not harm them and not take their stuff, broadly considered. Um, so anyway, bringing it back to how do I see Bitcoin is going to change this? I see it as cheap credit and fiat money have enabled this vast, vast expansion in the state in terms of their enforcement powers, 
their regulation powers. This It just creates this massive bureaucracy that makes it more and more difficult for business and entrepreneurs and just people in general to make ends meet because now they have to they have to pay all these government taxes, depending on where you are. That's property tax, income tax, sales tax, death taxes in some countries, you know, you name it. And then obey all these regulations that are not necessarily fit for the market. They're just kind of like this government one size fits all or this politician who wants to get popular managed to rile up the people. Or in some cases, it's delegated legislation that that, that politician didn't even really have much say over. So there's all these examples where I see that the expansion of the state has been enabled by their cheap access to the money printer. And so I see it as central banks emerged and were this, you know, they allowed the banking system to be cartelized. And then basically what happens is the large business owners and banks sort of ally with the, with the state, and then they sort of pillage the population. And so from my perspective, I'm not anti-banking per se, I'm anti-central banking and I'm anti-fiat money. And I believe that if we were to move away from fiat money and move into a Bitcoin standard, the state would not be that powerful. And then like, like, I was, uh, mentioned, like I've mentioned before, it's like this idea that even though I believe the ideal would, or at least least bad solution would be anarcho-capitalism, I'll take whatever reduction in the size of the state I can get, generally speaking. If I can get reduction in taxes or reduction in regulation, well, then I think that's a good thing. And I think that's generally what people should be trying to do because from my point of view, it's not like the market creates perfect outcomes. It's just that they're less bad than the state coming in with a one-size-fits-all rule that doesn't really fit and oftentimes makes things worse. So from my point of view, it's fixing the money stops the state expanding so much bigger than what it otherwise could because instead of having to tax you explicitly, they can just do it by debt and push that cost not just to future you but to your children and your children's children and, and enable people to sort of live at the expense of the next few generations or at least kind of in, increase their own living standard while hurting other people in the future, which is also unjust. unjust. No, yeah, um, I, I definitely um, get where you come from. I guess I'm taking it a step further, you know, because for me, I, I always think that the problem is most of the time thinkers, you know, people who think about the next thing then once they find that next thing and that next solution to get to move things better, they they uh, find some form of inertia and they don't want to move move on from that. And I think that's maybe what's happening to Bitcoin maximalists that, you know, they're like, OK, this is a great idea. And then they want to park there. Whereas for me, I'm uh, I also call myself a transition architect. You know, like I I lived um, all my life. I've been in transition. You know, because um, I lived, I was born during the Iran-Iraq war. You know, I th- I'm very comfortable with this idea of transition. And I think that with the speed of technology, we need to be ready for constant transition. So the way I see it, I think that um, blockchain technology could potentially uh, make it possible for us to move from representative democracy to direct democracy. And that's what DAOs are about. And I actually gave a TED talk about this. The next generation of democracy is being built on the next generation of the internet. Are you ready for it? So for me, like that's the idea of Web3, you know, and um, and DAOs, it's 
all that's what what this is all about so i hope to encourage you maybe to look into this a bit more you know maybe and i'd love to maybe have a follow-up conversation in six month time or something you know and see if you've had the chance to uh, to look into DAOs and think about you know how how do you see that because when i was listening to your conversation with peter mccormick i was thinking you know, like I kept wanting to interject and it was like, guys, DAOs, DAOs, how about DAOs? You know, because you were talking about how the state police and like, you know, all of these things could be organized through DAOs. And DAOs are not perfect. They're very, very new. They're in their infancy. But I can definitely see a potential there. Yeah. So my off-the-cuff reaction to that idea is that I think ownership is being underrated a little bit here because I think ownership is very important. And what happens in perhaps a DAO context is people can sort of palm it off and say, oh, you know, it just happened. It wasn't my, whereas if I'm an owner of whatever service, like if I own the road and it's my responsibility to make sure the customers get a safe road experience, or if I'm a, whatever, if I'm a butcher and it's my responsibility to give a good product, I think that ownership part is also really important because then having the right incentive to deliver the right service is important. Now that said, of course, I understand that there are um, like, for example, with BISC, there is a DAO and it's kind of done in a way where it's been set up in that way. I think partly because of government resistance, right? Having to resist the government has forced the creation of that kind of DAO because it has to operate in this way. But if we were to live under a world where you actually had a stronger sense of a property right to the things that you own, whether that's your business or your property, maybe a DAO wouldn't be so necessary. Maybe you could just own it and run it and operate it as a business owner, as a landowner or as whatever. But a person couldn't own the road. And actually in DAOs, you do have property rights because you have tokens. So, uh, you know, the, the members of the DAO, they will buy tokens and then these tokens are used to uh, to align the incentives between the different stakeholders so let's say you could say that um there are certain things in you know in human society that i'm passionate about so i'm going to buy the kind of tokens that are going to be making a contribution to solving that problem for humanity and um, the beauty of diversity is that we all have different experiences so we all have different things that we care about right like for example i really care about empowering women i i really care about you know solving certain problems that maybe somebody else coming from a different place wouldn't but if we all own tokens that enable us to vote because those tokens you know, enable you to vote for certain actions to be taken and then who is going to solve that problem. I think it, over time, like I say, you know, DAOs are so new, but I, uh, I definitely see that, see that we are going towards a more decentralized society. You know, if you think about going back all the way to the early history, you know, we had um, in the beginning, we had monarchy, kings and queens, and then around um, you know, around a 12th to 16th century, we uh, saw the rise of the elite and the artist and the, you know, the scientist. And then from 17th century, we saw the, the 17th to 19th century, we, we started to see the separation of the church and the state. And, and then we went into 20th century representative democracy. The way I see it, I think the next generation of democracy is uh, is more like direct democracy rather than representative democracy. So love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, sure. So I think it's important to recognize we already have 
equity, right? Like that ability to own a share in a company and vote on what happens. I mean, that already exists today. That's equity in a company and that's the stock market. Now, we could argue that the current form of the stock market has been let's say abused or malformed into this uh, by the fiat beast, right? It's been a downstream consequence of the fiat money as is that, let's say it's driven this crazy indexing approach as opposed to people actually taking ownership. So now we have the black rocks and vanguards and state streets of the world who just own everything. And then they're driving this kind of crazy uh, policies from the very top. But in theory, I see it as companies and owning a stock in a company is not really like, I don't see DAOs as adding that much more relative to just having a company, except as I said, in the case where the DAO needs to be able to be state resistant. And that's where I think as an example, BISC as a DAO makes sense because they needed to be like a KYC free means of people trading Bitcoin for fiat. That's as an example. I think DAOs in other contexts, may not make that much sense. I mean, hey, I'm open to being proven wrong and I'm not saying they should not exist. I think people should be free to go and operate these things. Uh, I have no, I guess, moral or real practical opposition to them in, uh, other than the point I was just saying, which is just that it might not be that useful if you already have good property rights. Now, now you could say, hey, you know what? Actually, in a lot of the world, the Western government won't give you that property right. You know, and maybe maybe there's a point to be made there, you know? I guess what I'm trying to kind of conceptualize is if you think about instead of the government, if we had a big DAO, right? Like, you know how now we have got within the government, you've got like the Ministry of Transportation. Instead of a Ministry of Transportation, you would have a sub-DAO, you know, that would be uh, about transportation. And then people could directly submit tickets of what is going wrong, you know, and, and um have a more direct say in the way that society is being run. So from my point of view, that still boils down to, I think, direct democracy. And from my point of view, direct democracy is not really an improvement because it ends up just being the same nine people voting for the 10th guy to pay, or it just ends up, or it can end up just being resulting in abuses where, okay. So in democracy of today, you can get these kinds of issues where it's like known, and this is like a thing people economists talk about. It's like this idea of distributed costs but very concentrated benefits. And so if you can find scenarios like that, where it would be too costly to try to get all the individuals of society to agree on something, to vote against it, to stop this, then companies can sort of pay a, a, a little bit of money to get some lobbying happening and get some benefit and get like a really big benefit because that's worth millions of dollars to that company or billions to that company. But, and all the average everyday Joes and people out there on the street don't understand they're being robbed but it's not worth their time just like rationally to go campaign in the streets for $10 each. But to that company, it's a lot of money. And so I think that's an example there. And I think fundamentally, if the Dow doesn't have strong property rights into the real world, then it can still get sort of shut down by governments, right? Because if a government says, no, well, we actually own that resource. You're not allowed to own it. We're regulating it or get lost you know like that's that's that right yes um just changing at the topic a little bit here i have a a theory uh, that the governments are trying to slow down the speed of um technological advancements um you know just 
thinking about list, uh, when I was listening to your conversation, latest one with Peter McCormick, you were sure. talking about um, COVID and you know and the overreaction. Um, you know that uh, that you you were of the opinion that there is um, you know that that COVID was just um, a flu that's like a few times worse than normal flu, yeah. and this was an overreaction. I totally agree with that. Um, but um, why do you think there was that overreaction? Do you think it was sheer incompetence, or do you think it was on purpose? Have you read the sovereign individual? I'm guessing you yes. read that. So they were talking about the possibility of a pandemic, yeah. you know, at, around this kind of time, right? Like it, it's it's quite interesting the way it happened and and the way that um, all governments reacted in quite quite a similar way. Like my um, theory is that this is about slowing down technology it's hard to say i i don't have any well-developed theories on rc it was this guy trying to you know pull the strings and slow it down it's more just maybe there's like this confluence of different interests right that there's this industry of people who make a lot of money out of government funded science and they sort of tended to align on that side and then the media and social media were sort of allying as the propaganda machine to scare people into, hey, stay at home, accept all these crazy impositions into your life that it would never have been allowed or even thought of 20 or 30 years ago, that would never have gone. It would have never flown. And on the other hand, you could also say, look, the fact that people could do Zoom work might have also helped enable it too, right? Like if, imagine if, if we didn't have like Zoom and Skype and things, they might not have seen it. There might not have been enough uh, of a population who could be made to go along with it because the way i'm seeing it is there was enough of a population who could go along with it that they did foolishly it was obviously a stupid error but there was enough people who either work for the government have safe jobs not going to lose their jobs uh welfare state recipients and people in the so-called zoom class right the people who can work from home on their laptops there weren't enough people in that brick and mortar category or people who really like who actually need to go out. And so I think when you sum that up and alongside the people who are sort of more ideologically aligned with this idea of all oh, lowering your consumption and so on, then, and just, I think a lot of hysterical people and maybe people who just were not able to think clearly and this culture of you're not allowed to speak out because if you do, we're going to cancel you and any doc doctors were being shut down. They were being taken, having their licenses taken away or people tweeting out things were just getting their accounts shut down like it, it was a confluence of all these different factors i think that led to what we saw with all the lockdowns and the travel bans and the, everything right so it's hard to say that it was like a specific conspiracy of this person and so on i i, I mean for all we know I, I don't know but i think a lot of it comes down to just incompetence and a confluence of interests that just happened to point in that same way. And there were enough people who thought or believed that or had an incentive to think that way, right? And especially if you had an internet business right now, now some of them are tanking, but at the start of the scam, basically in 2020, the FANG stocks were just running like crazy, like Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, et cetera, Google, Apple, they were all just going insane because everyone was sitting at home on the computer. So they were making a lot of money. Like, it's, it's not that everyone suffered. It's that certain businesses suffered at the expense of others who did really, really well. 
And obviously I think that was unjust because it, it broke all kinds of protections and rights that people thought they had, right? They, they didn't believe that someone else, some idiot in a, some idiot politician or bureaucrat, you know, thousands of kilometers away could just shut down your life, destroy your job, stop you seeing your family and just, yeah, without regard for your rights and your choice in the matter. Yeah, definitely. So um, what are your thoughts on the metaverse? Because this was also mentioned in the sovereign individual. It seems like basically everything they said has happened. The only thing that they didn't quite um, think about was the rise of China, um, you know, uh, which is something that Peter Thiel mentions in uh, in the foreword of the latest edition. Um, but yeah, yeah. So where do you see Bitcoin fitting in this? You know, what are your feelings about the metaverse? The fact that we are going to be spending so much time in the metaverse and um, like we are already in a kind of a metaverse, but you know, probably more immersive. And um, yeah, well, I'd love to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I don't have any well-developed thoughts on it. I, I do see a little bit of, I think my initial reaction is a bit anti this, right? Because it's kind of, you see what the the people like the World Economic Forum or, you know, th- these people are trying to push us into this kind of stay on your pod, eat the bugs, you know, just, you know, play this VR game and play we'll placate you and we'll just send you checks and don't worry. Like part of me is sort of, like pushing back on that and thinking no like i don't want that um i understand maybe in a more what's the word benign sense there are people you know who play games right like i mean most guys most of us grew up playing computer games as a kid right so we were playing computer games and whatever so in that sense i mean is that a metaverse maybe i mean if you're just playing like a game and maybe the games are getting more advanced, but it's important to remember that's a game. Like that is not meant to be real life and real life is meant to be interacting with people and, you know, achieving things and doing things. Very interesting. So there are a few things that I'm really hoping to have you back on the podcast and discuss. So uh, DAOs, the metaverse, you know, uh, and uh, uh, maybe NFTs even, I'm guessing that you are against them as well. I'd say they're kind of orthogonal for me. Like, I just don't really see any point. Like, yeah, if I had to steal, like, to be fair, to steal man the NFT, right? Even though I've never touched NFTs, I've never done anything with them. If I had to steal man it, I'd see it like, it's kind of like a Patreon for people you like, right? Like if it's a singer you like or an actor or whatever that you like and you buy their NFT, it's kind of like you're just patronizing them, right? Maybe that's kind of the way I, I, I see that. But I also see it like, hey, it's a big... Like we saw it was like a bit of a bubble, right? Like Jack Dorsey did an NFT of his first tweet and it got it went for millions and then someone tried to sell to sell it again. But then it, like the best bid on it was like $300 or something ridiculous. So I think it's like the bottom has fallen out of the NFT market and now um, reality is uh, coming back. I, I think there's a little bit more nuance to it. Um, you know, so that maybe that's another. So let's let's have a, uh, a follow-up call in about, six months sure. to a year <laughs> okay you sure. know and, and i think that uh you know just just have these things on your radar and then you know we can have a follow-up conversation and and i would love to hear how your thoughts develop you know throughout this time because sure. um, from my observation is that these these things are becoming more and more part of the public psyche and and i would say that um you know there's definitely there's 
really some really important things happening in the way that we are as humans. I think we are we are becoming more uh, integrated into uh, technology, into digital technologies, and um, I think this century is the century that we are going to, uh, you know, pretty much fully integrate uh, and and merge with technology. Maybe one last question would be. Have you read uh, The Singularities Near? Who's that by? Ray Kurzweil. Yes, actually, I think I have. I, I, I read this book called The Singular. I think it was called The Singularity by Ray Kurzweil. Maybe it's called yeah. The Singularities Near. The near. Singularities uh, Near. Yeah, I remember reading that. Uh, many, many a years ago. ago. Maybe yeah, like... 2009 or 10, around yeah. there, maybe yeah. 11. Around there was when I read it. Yes. I think it might have been out for, for three or four years, years I before I had read it. I found it really fascinating at the time, mm-hmm. um, but I think maybe overly bullish on timelines. I think so. He's got a he's got a follow up book coming up, and I'm really hoping to get him on a podcast. Um, you know, he's got a follow up book coming up uh, in 2023. I, I've already pre ordered it. It's called The Singularity is Nearer. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> you know, so um, yeah, I think it com- the combination of the singularity is near and, and you know, uh, the sovereign individual. And I really want to see what he's thinking about in terms of the singularity is nearer. Um, uh, I think that blockchain technology is going to get disrupted. So I'm looking at the next disruption, which I believe potentially is going to be with um, quantum computing. So that's what I'm already studying. Um, and, and like I said, you know, for me, blockchain technology was so much more interesting than Bitcoin per se. You know, I, th- I think that the technology itself is is got so much um, potential, but um, it, technology is moving so fast. So the the theme in everything that I personally look at is the exponentiality. How how exponentially things are changing. Yeah, I mean, from my point of view, I see it like blockchain technology is not actually that interesting to me. It's That's actually Bitcoin is the innovation. But uh, I. Uh, appreciate the conversation and uh you know i'm happy to chat again amazing i hope you enjoyed this conversation with stefan Livera. be sure to check out his excellent podcast and listen to his other interviews too and follow him on twitter if you enjoy this podcast be sure to subscribe to it on apple spotify or any other one of your favorite podcast channels and don't forget to give it a five star rating and write a review the full reviews are also available on my youtube channel